The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. Uh, Let's read this final chapter together. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the that bank of the stream, and someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished." I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of uh, the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, There shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is God's word for his people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come to your word tonight, we would be given understanding to know more of what you would have for us from this passage And as we look and seek understanding, we pray that we would not seek understanding for its own sake, but that we might give greater glory to our God and be molded more into the image of our great Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen. Here we are in chapter 12 of Daniel, and there's many things as we read through this chapter that certainly cause us to perhaps furrow our brows, puzzle over these days and those days and these times and those times and Uh, We'll look at those uh, tonight, but what should 
immediately come to mind as we arrive here at the end of the book is that this chapter is talking about the end of the ages as well, right? From the beginning of the chapter, we're seeing final judgment and, and, and everlasting life and, and the end of, of all things. And so as the visions that Daniel has received have taken him through different events in history, tonight we're coming to the end of history, and that will be the topic of what we look at here in chapter 12. I think this chapter divides itself into two sections, and I want to look at each of them in turn. So I'd like to start by looking at uh, the first section, which can be found in verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4 in tonight's text. If we begin with verses 1 and 4, though, it, it uh, immediately becomes evident that, that these are really a completion of the vision that began back in chapter 11 that Pastor York was talking about last week. Uh, last week, if you remember what he was talking about, Pastor talked about chapter 11 and, and gave us uh, an interpretation of these visions, much of which has taken place in the events of Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes. However, uh, Pastor York, I think, rightly uh, directed us that at the end of chapter 11, the focus of the chapter shifted away from the historical events that have already happened to a greater political opponent, one that uh, we often identify as the Antichrist, this, this figure who will be opposing God's people, uh, and that his work has not yet been completed. And so coming off of cha- the end of chapter 11, here's, here's Daniel having been given this picture of, of political opponent after political opponent who's working destruction and oppression of God's people, ending with this climactic figure who will be fighting against God's people and working destruction and desolation um, throughout uh, the, the Holy Land. And I mean, you can imagine if you put yourself in Daniel's shoes at the end of chapter 11, there's probably a, a certain sense of dismay or being overwhelmed of this picture of, of evil and the oppression and, and the, the success in one sense that evil is going to have as he sees the vision that was related in chapter 11. I can imagine Daniel looking at this vision something the way I would, would watch uh, a scene in, in Lord of the Rings for those who have seen it where the small band of faithful followers of Gandalf and Aragorn are looking out at this host of mile after mile of dark evil forces following Saruman and, and it seems like all you can see is evil everywhere. The forces of evil are amassed against you at such a level that, that what hope could you possibly have? And I could certainly imagine Daniel having something of that feeling here at, at the end of chapter 11. Perhaps it's even a, a mindset you have felt or, or you and I may feel at times looking around us at different political or social or, or ethical trends in, in our culture. And certainly there's, there's much to be discouraged about as we look around, whether it be the changing moral landscape uh, or whether it be the, the political actions that are happening here or there or around the world or, or wars and rumors of wars. Whatever it may be, there are certainly much that, that can uh, make us discouraged as well. But if anything, the context of Daniel's vision here, and as we come to chapter 12, we're going to come through this vision of, of evil and oppression to a vision of hope. But as we come to the context of this vision here, if there's anything it reminds us, it reminds us that, that we are in a broken world. And that a world wrapped in this increasingly vigorous attempt of the enemies of God to fight against God's people, to stamp out his rule, his influence, his people. And this is exactly the expectation that God's word sets for us. God's word sets the expectation that we as God's people will be in an increasingly 
uh, difficult time and in a time in which pain, suffering, and brokenness ought to be what we look forward to, what we expect in this world prior to the final victory that, that Christ had achieved. It shouldn't be a surprising expectation either. After all, God's own Son had a joy that was set before Him, but in order to reach that joy that Christ had set before Him, He first experienced the depths of pain, agony, suffering, brokenness, death. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that for God's people also, though there is a hope, a joy that's set before them, prior to the arriving of that hope and that joy, they too will go through the depths of pain, suffering, and brokenness. And that's what we see in chapter 11. But having come through chapter 11, chapter 12 uh, arrives and says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And here Daniel is beginning to get a picture of the hope that God's people have, even in the midst of the brokenness, despair, and forces of evil. It might seem surprising for you that... For in the context of evil, Daniel would be told uh, or given comfort and hope in the figure of Michael. I mean, after all, wouldn't it be the, the Son of Man or the Anointed One or Christ? We expect that Christ would be the figure who has charge over his people and would come to the rescue of his people. And so it, it might be something as, of a surprise that, that Michael is the one who shows up on the scene here as the, the great prince who has charge of God's people. But uh, it's worth remembering that the Bible consistently argues that God gives his angels the task of watching over his people. You might think of Psalm 34 or even Psalm 91. that Both declare that God has sent his angels to guard and to encamp around his people. Or maybe you think of, of Revelation, which clearly portrays this figure, Michael, as leading the fight against the dragon until the time at which Christ comes and wins the decisive victory. But it as we come to verse 1 of chapter 12, having followed this, this vision of chapter 11 through the pain and, and brokenness, what we come to is, is this first verse. A reminder that God is watching over His people and has employed His servants to keep guard over His people, no matter what the circumstances around us may seem. Whatever, whatever may seem to be falling apart around us, God and His servants are encamped around us, that by His strength we may be kept until God's time. But even more encouraging than this picture of Michael, a great prince who has charge over God's people, comes uh, the second part of this verse in which God's people are reminded that after this period of climactic trouble, oppression, and evil, at that time, final deliverance will come. You see, after that it says that, and there shall be a time of trouble such as there has never been before uh, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, At that time, your people will be delivered. After the time of oppression, and only after the time of evil and and oppression and brokenness, God's people will be delivered. And whether we are alive at that time or whether we are, are asleep, God's people will arise to everlasting life, while those who followed the Antichrist will go to everlasting contempt. This is the core. This is the the sum. This is all that there is. This is the great hope that we have. Because no matter what we see when we look around us, when we come to this verse, we see at that time your people will be delivered. And whether you are alive or whether you are asleep, you will arise to everlasting life. It's this hope that strengthens God's people. 
in the midst of and in the face of trials and oppression that are around us, trials and oppression that they are experiencing, or trials and oppression that, uh, in the case of Daniel, he may see coming before them. This past week, I was reading an account of two young men, both people of an Asian country that actively persecutes the church, I was reading an account given by a pastor of an underground church as these two men came to him and expressed a desire to be baptized. And you can imagine all that's wrapped up in a decision to be baptized in, in a nation which actively is persecuting the church and which the church needs to remain underground. And I was struck by the question that the pastor asked these two young men. Directing the question to each of them by name, he said... Chris, are you willing, using my name here, are you willing to be baptized knowing that it may cost you your life? For them, death was a real possibility. The decision to follow Christ meant that their lives were now at stake. But for you and me, when we think about the question of brokenness and oppression and the forces of evil, and as we think about then the hope that that God has waiting for us, the question really should be the same. Are you willing to be baptized knowing it may cost you your life? Perhaps you may suffer criticism. You may be labeled a bigot or a fool. You may be shut out of social or employment circles. All of those are possible. But you will be asked to give up your comforts your desires, your self-oriented goals, your pleasures in order to follow Christ. You will be asked to go through pain and suffering as your Savior went through pain and suffering. You will be asked to live in the broken world as we anticipate and wait the coming of God's great salvation. So it will cost us our life. But these first verses of Daniel remind us that, that all of that is worth it. All of that pales in comparison to what's coming. Because knowing that after suffering, trial and death awaits resurrection, God's people are delivered and delivered to everlasting life. Your hope and my hope as the people of God is that we will shine like the brightness above, like the stars themselves, according to verse 3 of Daniel chapter 12. We will keep on shining forever and ever, it says. No oppression, no despair, no suffering can dim the glory of this hope. You think of the picture and the analogy these verses are giving us here. As we come through this time of suffering, as we come through the oppression, as we come through the brokenness of the world, in God, God's people have a hope, a hope like the brightness of heaven above, like the stars that shine forever and ever. This hope cannot be dimmed. God's people await this hope as they go through and travel through the time of brokenness to get there. One commentator put it this way. He said, The prospect of heaven is the answer to Satan's temptations to compromise and submit to his ways. The anticipation of seeing God's face shining on us with the same warmth and love that he had for his own son is the answer to our present discouragement, difficulty, and despair. Lift up your eyes from the trials and difficulties of the present and behold the glorious inheritance God has prepared for you. Gaze intently upon that glorious sight and let it strengthen your weak knees and encourage your failing arms for the battle that is still set before you. This is the hope that we are given in the first few verses of Daniel chapter 12. Of course, as we look at this, as we think about suffering with hope, to come, we should quickly add that the hope that we have, the, the reward that we have, does not come because we suffer. 
In other words, while while the promise is that suffering awaits God's people with a reward after that, the promise arrives after suffering, but the promise does not come as a reward or something we have earned because we have suffered. Your suffering does not automatically earn you or merit you a reward at the end. Rather, it is not our faithfulness through suffering that brings hope of eternal life. It is Christ's faithfulness through suffering that earns us eternal life. It is the hope of every martyr, every dying Christian, every persecuted or suffering believer, not that they have suffered and therefore that suffering means they'll get a better life to come. It's the hope of every martyr and persecuted Christian and everyone who who dies for their Savior, their Savior Christ Jesus. And His death is their hope. His death is what merits the reward at the end for His people, not ours. So as we fix our eyes on the hope that God gives us in this verse, from our vantage point 2,500 years after Daniel, we look at this hope through the eyes of Christ Jesus, fixing our eyes on our Savior, saying it is through Christ Jesus in His suffering, He who walked this path before us, that we too have the hope of everlasting life through suffering. Well, this is, this is the glorious hope we have despite the expectation of a time of trouble before us. But as this vision comes to a close, Daniel looks and realizes that he has not been seeing this vision alone. It's interesting, verse 5 says that, I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood on the stream. Daniel is looking into this. He's seeing this vision. He is seeing the, the, the trial that's come as well as the hope that's to come, but he's not seeing this vision alone. And as Daniel and, and the others who have seen this vision process what they have heard, two questions immediately come out which form the focus of the second half of this chapter. And so as we look at verses 5 through 12, these two questions can guide us through, through this part of the text. The first question which uh, one of the others who are, are viewing the vision asks is, when will this, these things take place? In verse 6 he says, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders. So when will these things be? It's a natural question. You've given us this grand vision. You've given us this great hope. When's this going to happen? A good question. And then Daniel will ask later down, uh, what will the end or what will the outcome of these things be? Uh, you could take that question as how will these things take place? So when will these, these, these things take place and how will these things take place? These two questions guide us through the second portion of Daniel chapter 12. Let's look at at both of them in turn. First, let's look at the question, when will these things take place? The the man clothed in linen takes this question, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders in verse 6? And he responds that the the, the end of all of these things will come after a time, times, and half a time. We might uh, ask, or we, we might wish, that perhaps the answer to this question would be a little bit clearer than a time, times, and half a time. That answer may seem to beg more questions than it solves, perhaps. Uh, but most commentators um, looking at this and realizing that this same phrase, a time, times, and half a time, has already been used in Daniel chapter 7. It's a phrase that comes up again in the book of Revelation. Uh, this, this phrase most commentators take is a, a period of three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time. And if three and a half years is, is a, a correct interpretation of that, then um, looking at this number likely is a symbolic number for half of seven. 
And if you think of your biblical literature and, and your, your literature of prophecy, you'll remember that seven is often used as a, as a symbolic number for completeness or, or wholeness. And if seven is a number of completeness or wholeness, then three and a half, which is half that, would likely, as most commentators agree, is a number for a partial time rather than the fullness of the time. And so most commentators look at this and say, well, what's being said here is that there is going to be a partial time rather than a a full time of judgment and oppression. There will be a partial period, a partial judgment or time of oppression that will not lead to the end of all things. It will be partial, not full. Um, And the end of that three and a half years, the the end of that time, times and half a time will will come when the angel says, when the power of the holy people has been shattered. Uh, This reference, again, uh, is perhaps shocking to us. This partial period of of judgment and oppression will only be completed when God's holy people have been shattered? What kind of hope or promise is that? Don't worry, Daniel. It's a partial period of oppression, but it'll be over as soon as God's holy people are shattered. It doesn't seem like much of a promise of, of hope or joy or expectation here. God's plan seems to be that his enemies will succeed to the point at which all of his people's power has been broken. But again, that is exactly the surprising pattern of God's victories. Think about how God works in history, including in his own son. Victory comes only after all power seems broken. Resurrection comes after death, crucifixion, burial. Victory comes after tribulation and trial. Hope arrived for God's Son only after suffering runs its complete course. And hope arrives for God's people only after their power has been broken. And resurrection is all that they have left to look for. So, if we look at this first question, when shall these things be? What seems to be prophesied is a period of tribulation, which will see the shattering of the power of God's people. But it will not be a full measure of judgment or trial. It is partial. It is limited by God's mercy to this time, times, and half a time. Well, if that's the immediate answer to the question, um, time, times, and half a time, the question of when will these things take place and the question of timeline and and dates and times comes up again in in verses 11 and 12. And I want to look at those numbers while we're talking about a a timeline here. Because in verse 11, we get another set of of days, another number. It says that from the time of the regular burnt offering being taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. It's worth considering this along with uh, the time, times, and half a time. This number is a lot more debated. Most commentators are generally in agreement about looking at uh, the time, times, and half a time as a symbolic period. How to interpret 1,290 days creates a little bit more controversy. Most of the commentators generally fall in one of two camps. Either uh, they will look at this as a literal period of time, a literal 1,290 days that will come when this Antichrist comes at a, a climactic period of trial right before Christ's return. And if that's the case, we don't know exactly what this 1,290 days looks like yet. It's, it's still out there. It's still to come. Um, and so that's how uh, many would, would take this. Uh, many other commentators, um, which uh, I, I tend to agree with more, realize that if the Babylonian calendar is used, 
1,290 days is exactly three and a half years to the day. And so I, along with many others, would say, well, 1,290 days may well just be a reiteration of the three and a half year period, this period of trial and tribulation that's a partial period rather than uh, a full period of, of judgment. If that's the case, though, the natural question that arises is, well, why use 1,290 days this time? Why not just say time, times, and half a time again? And I think the, the answer to that um, comes when we look at what is God emphasizing here. And the first time when, when he refers to the three and a half years, I believe uh, that this text is emphasizing that this is a limited time, that God in his mercy is limiting this judgment, even as it comes to the shattering of his people. But 1,290 days, spelling this out in the exact number of days, emphasizes that God is sovereign, and God has numbered every day of the suffering of his people. God is completely working out his plan. God is carrying this through, emphasizing the fact that this period of suffering that his people are going to go through does not catch him by surprise. Rather, it is known to the precise day at which it will begin and which it will end. What could be more comforting to God's people than to know that he knows every single day of their trial, every single day of their suffering, and every, exactly when, exactly to the day at which this will be ended and the hope of eternal and everlasting life will come to them. So I would follow those commentators who view the 1,290 days as a restatement of these three and a half years, this period of trial. Either way, though, whichever way we interpret 1,290 days, we immediately are confronted by another set of numbers, 1,335 days. Well, what in the world is this number doing? Here, another, another set of, of numbers here. There's a significant number uh, amount of discussion about this. Few commentators have a concrete answer as to what uh, this number refers to, but all of them seem to agree on a, on a point which I think is best explained this way. The inclusion of a num- another number, which is slightly longer than the first one, the inclusion of this number seems designed to heighten the sense of mystery that surrounds the Lord's timing and the need for faithful perseverance on the part of the saints, even when, according to human wisdom, God's time seems far overdue. Though the time for God to complete his work may seem to have come, his people still wait patiently for the end when God's return comes in God's time. And so whatever the days refer to exactly, most commentators agree that the point is God's people are waiting for his time, even if it seemed to be stretched beyond what they uh, initially expected or or thought or or were, were waiting for. Now, I want to step back quickly, though, and say with all these numbers, I would just note that God's purpose for revealing this text to us is not to tell us which day it is that he's coming or when exactly we can expect him to show up uh, in, 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 uh, on the, in the sky. Rather, his purpose here is to teach him about himself. It is to teach us his purposes, and it is to teach us what to expect and what, as, as a general pattern of, of how things are going to be taking place and what hope we have even in the midst of the trials and oppression and brokenness that we're experiencing. That's the knowledge. The pattern to expect and the hope that we have at the end, that's the purpose that God has for us in this text, not telling us what exactly the day is on which he will arrive. Well, if that's uh, some rough thoughts on the numbers in this passage, we can look to the second question, which is uh, a bit more clear-cut, perhaps. Daniel says, well, what shall be the outcome of these things? And I, I love the honesty of Daniel's question in verse 8. 
Daniel hears this time, times, half a time in this prophecy, and Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. I'm glad that we're not alone sometimes when we hear this. Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. So I said, uh, how, my Lord, what will the outcome of these things be? It's interesting that the first thing that the angel responds is, Daniel, go your way. Go your way, for these words have been shut up and sealed. God's purposes, again, are not to answer every little question, but to give us the grand scheme and the hope that we have at the end. But Daniel's not just left with that. Daniel is also left with another reminder, another uh, encouragement in answer to his question of how is all of this going to take place. Daniel gets a restatement of much of the pattern that we have already heard. The restatement he gets is, Through these trials, many shall purify themselves and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. We're told that as the righteous and as the wicked alike face this time of trial, as they face this time of oppression and brokenness, as the world and the the, the forces of, of evil are at work in the world, there's going to be a separation. Those who are wicked continue to act wickedly, while those who are looking to their God shall be refined in the process. I think this reminds us on two sides. First of all, that the trials, again, do not purify in and of themselves. For the wicked continue to act wickedly. And yet, the times of oppression and trial are still times used by God in the lives of his people. It is not an opportunity for God's people to bemoan the wickedness or complain of the wickedness or or groan under the burden that has been given. Rather, it's a time for their refinement to be made righteous. And so Daniel here, much like James and Paul, could perhaps echo what they will write uh, books later. When James wrote, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or perhaps Daniel would would reiterate what Paul said when he said, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. For the righteous in this time of oppression are refined and made white, and to the people that God plans for them to be. As we look at this text, we see first an incredible hope, even through a time of oppression and trial for God's people, a hope of being in everlasting life with our God, shining as stars forever. And in answer to these questions that Daniel and and the other onlooker ask, we see a a pattern and a promise that through these times of, of oppression and brokenness, the end will arrive. God will be limiting that time to a partial time. God will be numbering that time so that he as a sovereign God will bring his people through it to the time of refinement and to the time of hope at the end. Well, if this is the, uh, the answer that we get here, I want to just leave you with a few quick applications as we come to the end of this chapter. First, we've already said that there's a natural desire to try to figure out when exactly these things are happening. There's sort of the natural question of, ooh, can we begin to match up some things we see going around us with the text and discern where we are in the plot here? I was talking with my father-in-law recently about a Sunday school he attended on this very chapter, and the teacher of the Sunday school said, obviously, this is all about to happen. Because verse 4 says people are running to and fro and knowledge shall increase and people are busier than ever. And with the internet, there's more knowledge than ever. So this verse is being fulfilled. And I think what we need to do is 
walk ourselves back and say, well, for hundreds of years, knowledge has been increasing and things have been increasing in, in speed and, and we, could, we could walk this out for who knows how many more centuries. It's dangerous to try to match up our times with, with these verses. I think perhaps the wisest statement on how to, to think about this came from Dr. Boyce who said this. He said that Satan is always seeking to undermine God's people. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we see a reflection of, of these, these things at, at all times. That we see a reflection of, God, of Satan's work opposing God's people and of the suffering that is taking place and of the brokenness of the world at all times. But though we see a reflection of that at all times, we still await the final time when these things will be brought to a climactic conclusion. So I would first remind us that this is not about figuring out exactly when this will happen. It's about seeing the hope that we have in this text. Second, these verses also remind us that faithfulness is not a single decision and perseverance is not a short-term commitment. God's people here wait and wait and then wait some more. And it often seems like the waiting will never stop for God to fulfill his plan. Maybe some of you, like me, have often thought back to the early Christians who uh, came to Christ in the the period of the apostles' ministry. Would they ever have guessed that there would be 2,000 years of people following Christ and what would, how long things would go until Christ should return. I don't know what the answer is to that, but we also don't know how long things will continue. But God's people often are waiting for God's fulfillment of his promise. Think of the people in Egypt for 430 years or, or God's people without a single word of prophecy for 400 years leading up to Christ or now the many years. God's people wait and the waiting often may seem to, to lead to a lack of hope. God's people often may be brought to a point where they say, will God ever fulfill these promises? These passages calling to us to persevere and to wait patiently. I'm often asked what my favorite book is, and that's a hard question to answer, but one of them is a book called A Kingdom Far and Clear by author Mark Helprin. And in this book, Helprin describes a group of faithful men who are waiting for the fulfillment of a prophecy that others have now declared is, is never going to come true. And Helpern writes this about this, this group of men. He says, Those who believed the prophecy literally became fewer and fewer. As time passed and an angel did not fall, where the sun did not dim, they were ridiculed, and they could not help but doubt themselves sometimes. The world of fact and event seemed to conspire against them, for they had staked their hearts on miracles, and miracles did not seem forthcoming. Surely that's the way we feel sometimes. We've staked our heart on miracles, and at times it seems like miracles are not forthcoming. It's, we can go sit on our couch and flip on the TV or, or open our iPhone and look up anything we want. We live in an age of technology. We know the routines of our life. Is there really going to be a miracle of resurrection and the return of a great God and Savior? These are the questions that can press in upon God's people who are waiting and waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. But we do have confidence in God's promises. As God's people, we wait confident in what he has done in history, confident in what he is doing in our hearts, in our lives, and in his church around the world, and confident in what he will do, that he will fulfill his promises just as he has again and again and again throughout the history of his work and his people. We wait for him in his perfect time, persevering with our eyes fixed on our Savior. And finally, we should note that this prophecy of the future also brings us right back to how we should act here in the present. 
After three chapters of these visions of the future, after Daniel's mind has been sent spinning on what all's going to happen years and centuries down the road, you'll note verse 13 at the very end of this text yanks Daniel right back to the present. The man in linen looks at Daniel and says, But Daniel, go your way till the end. Then you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of your days. Your end, your hope is secure. Therefore, go, Daniel, and live according to that hope now. I think Sinclair Ferguson has said it best when he says, In one form or another, every New Testament passage that points to God's future plans carries with it this application. Therefore, since all these things are going to be, what manner of persons ought to you to be now, living in holy conduct and in godliness? The biblical response to the promises of God's future coming kingdom is always, now go and live for that kingdom now. Recognize his reign now. Be obedient now. Fulfill your responsibilities now. So as we look at this text and say, this is your future hope, fellow Christian, our response should be, go therefore now and be obedient and live with the joy and the hope that is to come. So fellow believers, your hope is secure. You will reign with God. You will shine as stars forever and ever, those whose names are found in the book of life. You will be delivered. You will be purified. You will be refined. Go now and persevere in godly conduct. Even if your power appears to be shattered by the brokenness and immorality all around you, persevere in hope, for you shall rest and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Let's pray. God, we thank you that the things that we see around us and the circumstances that swirl around us, these do not determine our identity and these do not dictate or determine our hope. Our hope has already been determined. Our hope has already been secured. It has been secured in the person and the work of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And so we pray that we would fix our eyes on that hope, that we would rest in that hope, and that we would pursue that hope. We pray that you would be working in us, refining us, and making us white, that we might shine to your glory forever and ever. And we pray this in your name. Amen.